0: Few episodes we've been assembling a picture of the Scottish slave trade. We've looked at how Scottish people went from colonised to colonisers and examined the lives of mixed race black children with white Scottish fathers and enslaved black African mothers. Now we're back to a well trodden theme, following the money to understand how Scotland's national development was shaped by the slave trade and who the winners and losers were among the people who were trying to profit from enslavement. I'm Moya Lothie MacLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history and my own past at the same time. This is Human Resources. There is a perception of the slave trade as an instant shortcut to get rich quick. But like the California gold rush of 1848, or the Bitcoin boom of the 2010s, for every winner who made their fortune in slavery, there was a bevy of financial losers. Now, I'm not going to waste any sympathy on those who lost out investing in the slave trade, but I think the stories of Scottish people who found their get-rich-quick dreams in tartan and tatters can provide us with another perspective on the business of empire and enslavement like the story of Francis Seaforth.
1: Francis Mackenzie, the Lord Seaforth, he's interesting. He inherited land in Scotland, a lot of land in Scotland, around Inverness, and then he inherited Lewis and land in Kintail as well. So he had huge land holdings and he had a very lavish lifestyle. This is Alison Clark.
0: She's halfway through a PhD at Edinburgh University. And she's going to tell me about the fortunes of Lord Seaforth. Born in 1754, Seaforth would rise to become the governor of Barbados. He was unusual in many ways. Firstly, because from a young age, he was deaf. In the 19th century, discrimination against the disabled was, unsurprisingly, even more overt than it is now. Francis was called deaf Mackenzie by his peers. I asked Alison if Francis Seaforth's life was typical of the Scottish elites in this period.
1: He felt that a man of his position should have a very grand house and entertain people and all the rest of it. He had a lavish lifestyle that cost a lot and he was heavily in debt. Every few years an estate would be set, so the new set of the estate would be when all the tenancies and rents were rearranged for the next few years. And his factors, who ran his estates, advised him that he should not renew tenancies and he should lease that land for sheep runs. But his idea of himself as a highland laird was quite as a kind patriarch who would look after his people and wouldn't clear them off the land. However, he did need money. At this point,
0: Seaforth is still in Scotland, isn't he? Let me guess. Does his financial recovery plan include the slave trade?
1: What he decided to do was invest in Berbice, which is a neighbouring colony to Demerara. And people had started to make a lot of money there. He'd heard news of large fortunes that could be made. So he bought estates there and he sent his Scottish factor to Fairbairn out to manage them. And he was there for 20 years, but the estates actually never made money. they just for one reason or another, lost money. So although he was involved in slavery, and although he owned land in the Highlands, the money went in the opposite direction than you might expect. So although he was hoping to make money from the Caribbean, he didn't, he made a loss. And eventually when he died in 1815, people were cleared off his Highland estates. So although he tried to avoid that, he was really just putting off the inevitable kind of creeping commercialism and this need to raise money from land and pay off debts with it. He was governor of Barbados at the beginning of the 19th century and he portrayed himself, he thought of himself as a very humanitarian governor. He tried to bring in a law whereby a white man who killed a black person could be tried for murder, which wasn't the case before. So there were things that he tried to put in place that he saw as right I don't know that that makes him humanitarian, but he certainly didn't get on with the planters in Barbados. And he did try and improve things towards some sort of better level of justice, but obviously he was in the wrong business (laughs) to do that.
0: Oddly, it's really struck me for the first time that the business of enslavement could ever not be profitable.
1: I think the reason that we think it's a profitable business is because the people who made money returned to Britain and the people who made a lot of money bought and built quite ostentatious houses and led lifestyles of conspicuous consumerism. That's what people saw. But for every person who returned to Britain, there were other people who were stuck in the Caribbean, in debt, unable to return. So some of the letters that I've been reading, two of my men returned to Scotland in 1795. But the years preceding that, when they were busy trading to North America, they write that they can't come home yet because they haven't got enough money to pay off their correspondent in Glasgow. So they couldn't return until they were free of debt. And we see other, George Robertson's nephew, Gilbert Robertson, went to Demerara in the early 1800s, and he married Eliza Thomas, who was the daughter of Doll Thomas. And she's a really interesting character. She was a former slave who became emancipated and was a very successful entrepreneur and owned plantations and slaves. And Gilbert Robertson started off working with one of the Sandback Tinney partners, Charles Parker, and he ran Parker's estate in Demerara when Parker returned to Scotland. So he ran that from 1800, but he got into debt, personal debt, and that business association finished and he ended up working for his mother-in-law, Doll Thomas, running her estates. So she's a different character. He was very interesting. So he, he just stayed in Demerara for his entire life. I think he came home right at the end of his life when he was very ill and he died very shortly after returning.
0: You may be thinking that Demerara sounds familiar. If you bake it all or stock brown sugar in your cupboards, this may be why you know the name. While the region formerly known as Demerara is now part of Guyana, the legacy lives on in our kitchen. And we will, of course, explore how sugar created one of Britain's largest industries in a later episode. But back to Alison and this interesting way to think about debt and slavery. That you could be in great debt in the colonies and still live a far better lifestyle than being in great debt in Britain. Economic status almost mirrored fluctuating social capital across the empire.
1: There were occasions where if they were in debt and they came back, they would be put in prison. So they had to stay out there. They also had a lifestyle that was privileged and there was a disease environment there as well. So a lot of people did go out and die very soon after arriving. But if you didn't die, and you could have this privileged lifestyle because of your colour and because of your kind of British status.
0: There's a lot happening these days. There's a story of a company that you've been researching, Sambak Tinney, that stitches together a lot of different threads concerning Scottish personal and national fortunes that we see make and break at this time. Sandback Tinney were one of the first titans of the Scottish cotton industry, which was a massive driver of industrialisation in the country.
2: That
1: particular company, they imported cotton to Clyde, so I would say that they impacted the Very early years of the cotton industry in Scotland and helped to get it established by supplying the raw materials. The other area of Britain that was a cotton area was in Lancashire and round Liverpool, so the northwest of England into the southwest of Scotland, but also into Perthshire, and there were cotton mills throughout Scotland. Most of them were round Glasgow. So I think that's not a very tangible legacy because. Historians of the Industrial Revolution in Scotland maybe haven't really connected with the Caribbean links of where the raw material came from.
0: Who were the people behind Sandback Tinney?
1: The people who were the founding partners, the two older partners were Scottish, they were from the Highlands, they were Gaelic speakers. One of them, George Robertson, had gone out to Grenada in the 1780s And he had uncles who were out there and he had an older brother who was there in Tobago. So this part of the Caribbean was really well populated by Highland Scots. At the end of the Seven Years' War, 20 years before, in 1763, Britain had been ceded what they called the ceded islands. Grenada, the Grenadines, St Vincent, Dominica and Tobago had all been French property under French rule, and they were passed to British rule. So the British government sold lots of land in order to try and attract as many British settlers as possible so that they could stabilise the islands, so that they could manage the existing French population, and a really large population of Indigenous people, particularly on St Vincent and Tobago, So in order to attract as many Britons as possible, they sold land in lots of between 300 acres and 500 acres. But they also sold quite small plots called poor man's plots, which would be enough to build a house and have a garden. And the people who might buy that plot might be doctors or lawyers or people who perhaps were not directly involved in plantation management. And the larger plots would be to establish an estate to grow sugar or cotton or another crop. Despite
0: literally being involved in the slave trade, they still managed to make their business practices more illegal, didn't they?
1: One of the other founding partners of Sandback Tinney was also a Highland Scot called James McEnroy, and he was based in Demerara, which was Dutch. The Dutch didn't allow cotton to be taken out of the colony to Britain, it had to be legally exported to Holland. So in order to bring cotton out of Demerara to St George's, he had to smuggle it out. And that was very common. And he also made a lot of money by smuggling slaves, enslaved Africans into Demerara, because the Dutch would only allow a, a direct slaving ships from Africa to be, they would only allow Dutch ships to go in and they didn't supply enough enslaved Africans to satisfy the demand of this growing cotton area. It was a really rapidly developing frontier for growing cotton and the Dutch didn't supply enough enslaved Africans but the British did. They brought them into British territory and James McEnroy and his partners smuggled them into Demerara and they smuggled cotton out. How can we
0: trace their physical legacy on the Scottish landscape today?
1: There is a tangible link on the Clyde. He came back from the Caribbean and he built a large mansion house at Goorook on the south shore of the Clyde. And next to it is a place called McEnroy's Point, which is where the ferry nowadays leaves from Goorook to Dunoon to cross the Clyde. So that point still bears his name and the large house that he built is now flats very close by. But the history, his history isn't well known in that area, although I think that's where his ships with cotton and sugar must have come in. So that's one built legacy. Later in his life, before he died, about four years before he died in 1821, he bought a Highland estate, which is in Highland Perthshire in Blair Athol, called Lude Estate. And that's quite interesting because when he bought that there wasn't a large mansion house on it. He lived there for four years and then died there. It was very close to where he had grown up. He grew up in a village called Moulin in that Athel area of Highland Perthshire, and Moulin was a linen producing town so all of the women in the area spun linen yarn and they sold it once a year in February at a market and that yarn paid for all the rents in the area and there were also a lot of linen weavers so McEnroy's brother was a weaver in Moulin. So he came from this town originally that a lot of this linen ended up being sold to the Caribbean to clothe enslaved workforce. That sounds really similar
0: to the history of mid-Wales we investigated in series one in the episodes Woolly Morals parts one and two exploring the production of negro cloth among Welsh farming communities I'm interested in returning to our discussion of debt and profitability, though. Were there certain figures in the slave trade more likely to avoid debt? For example, were merchants more likely to turn a profit than planters?
1: Within that system of finance, of credit from Britain, and the cycle of paying off your debts a year after you'd taken them on, and if there was a poor cotton crop, you wouldn't be able to pay it off completely. The way to make money, and the way that the Sandback-Tinney partners made money, was to minimise risk, as in any business. So they were merchants and they made their money carrying cotton back to Britain. But when they carried that cotton, they didn't own it. It was still owned by the planter, but they charged freight. They organised the insurance and took a cut of that. And when it organised all the handling charges in Demerara and in the Clyde or in Liverpool... They organised the storage of it and the selling of it. So none of this income had any risk attached to it. If the cotton crop was poor or if the cotton got damaged, it was somebody else's problem. They would still get paid the freight and the carrying charges. So although those were smaller charges, it maybe wasn't as much money as you would get from growing cotton yourself. There was much less risk. That was how they operated as merchants. They also became financiers of planters so they would lend money to a planter to buy an estate or to upgrade an estate or to in the early years to buy enslaved Africans but of course that finished after 1807 but there were you know people always needed money they needed money to buy food and clothing and equipment for their plantations so San Bakhtini imported that to Demerara and sold that And if they became a financier for a planter, they attached conditions to that, which would be that the planter would have to buy all their British goods from Sandbachtinie and they would have to export all their crop via Sandbachtinie and Sandbachtinie would have the commission of that crop to sell it in Britain.
0: I'm wondering now if merchants managed to shield their links to the slave trade the way the rich and powerful do in the present with the likes of offshore accounts and long chains of holding companies. Most of the ways we trace ownership and investment come solely from slavery compensation records, which only give a partial
1: picture. Those compensation records show that some of the enslaved people they claimed for were resident on Sandbachtini-owned estates, but some of them were resident... They were on other estates that were mortgaged to Tinney, So the Tinney company took ownership of them. They said that they owned them because they had the mortgage. It is capitalism. It's making money and it's investing money. It's very much a capitalist issue.
0: I wonder how many incidences we have of mortgages being used in this way before. Are we starting to see the sort of boom in mortgage usage in this manner? in a way that we recognise today in the modern world.
1: I don't think these men would have been able to take a mortgage out on land in Britain. I think they were able to take a mortgage out on land in the Caribbean because it was financed by large companies. And some of the largest companies were Scottish. Alexander Houston and Company in Glasgow lent huge amounts of money to the Southeast Caribbean at the end of the 18th century. So it was quite relatively easy. It was relatively easy to borrow money, to buy land. And this our system of mortgage management, I think, evolved through that. So the whole Caribbean economy, that plantation, slave-based plantation economy, it was high risk. But if you were lucky, you could get very high returns from your sugar or your cotton. But what you find with people who return to Scotland to repatriate their wealth They often want to move away from that high risk investment and invest in land in Britain instead, which was lower return, but lower risk. So I guess as people got older and they were retiring or they just wanted not to have everything invested in this very high risk, boom or bust kind of plantation economy.
2: I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lea Alec-Murray. And I'm Lea President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents... I remember, what was
1: that? Say <laughs> what you're going to say, and I'll circle back. No, I-
3: Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.
2: You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host, created it, been doing it for seven years. If you head to sites of importance in the
0: Scottish national identity today, like Edinburgh, the legacy of Scottish slavery is visible in the buildings of the city, if you know where to look for it, that is. But it's not just ornate property that tells a story. So when you're walking through the centre of Edinburgh, you've got our main shopping street. So it's kind of like the Oxford Street of Edinburgh, right? Not
3: quite as grand, but you've got Prince's Street. Now right at the end you've got a church called St John's Episcopal Church, And when you walk in, you see this grave. It's on its own, but it's also next
0: to a larger family plot. Lisa Williams spends a lot of her time looking for the legacies of Scottish slavery. She runs the Edinburgh Caribbean Association and leads walking tours, uncovering the stories of enslavement linked with built heritage. Lisa, who is buried in this lone grave in the churchyard of St John's?
3: The story of the person who was buried there, her name was Malvina Wells. She was mixed race. Her father was a man called John Wells of Alness in Scotland. And the mother, as far as we know, was African. And the oral history, We actually go back to talk to the people on the island where she was from, people think her mother's name was probably Anne. And Karakou is a small island. It's about six miles by three, roughly. You've got about 8,000 people that live there. And it's a very, very special and unique island because it's, it's very, very difficult to know about your African ancestry, know exactly where people are from, and that being such a cause of pain for so many people with African ancestry. Karakou is quite different because it's one of the very few places in the African diaspora where people can trace their African lineage back to certain people.
0: That's so rare. Are there any particular reasons that mean the trail is still there to follow for descendants of the enslaved? wishing to trace their ancestry back to the island.
3: Now, the reason why it's so connected, one of the reasons why is because you have Scots like Oswald and Grant Company who own that notorious island, Bunce Island of Sierra Leone. They would traffic people directly from one island to another. So often you would get people who would be, with all the horror, traffic together and able in a way to keep some of their language and keep some of their culture in a way that other people were not be able to do it's also a place where there was a lot of absentee landowners as well and there was a bigger black population as compared to the white population so in a way people are able to carry on their traditions a bit more that isn't to say a lot of these traditions to do with drumming and dancing it was to do with spirituality and culture wasn't banned at some particular period, but it's one of the very, very few places where people are able to make this connection. And recently, about four or five years ago, the Temne people of Sierra Leone went and found their Temne counterparts in Caracou and made that connection again, which again is a beautiful thing.
0: As of the present day, Malvina Wells is the only known person to be buried in Edinburgh who was born enslaved. How did Malvina find herself in Edinburgh? What's her story?
3: Now, she actually was brought here from Caracoo. She's born around 1805, as far as we know. She shows up on a slave register in Grand Bay in Caracou in 1817. She comes here with a Scottish family who she's been working for. or There's been an arrangement with this Maclean family. There's a woman called Jessie Maclean, who brings Malvina Wells over after Jessie's husband has just, just died. So she brings Malvina Wells as... A nanny, she's a servant in the household. She lives until she's 82 years old and there's a huge amount of information about her, which is, again, really unusual. There's a woman who got in touch with me recently who's descended from the family that she worked for. She's been researching this for decades. And first of all, feeling a bit uncomfortable about it because it means, you know, ancestors, complicity and slavery and so on. And then she said, no, I really need to follow this story and find out as much as we can.
0: Maclean's her. Interesting. How much freedom did Malvina have as a formerly enslaved woman in Scotland? Owning a slave on Scottish soil was made illegal in 1778, so her experience illustrates those complex power dynamics whereby a person could technically not be enslaved, but their freedom could manifest differently from that afforded to their white peers in service. What we do know, again, which is really unusual, she goes back to
3: Carrica in 1860 on a ship to go visit family. And it's in some of the letters in the family archives saying, oh, Mally looks so much better for a trip home, you know, she's back. So to have that kind of experience, again, really, really unusual. She also leaves a will. Now, she's the head of a household of... Servant, she's like the, the main servant out of seven servants in some situation. and sometimes she's a nanny taking care of the children. She leaves a will that is equivalent to 68,000 pounds in our money today, and that money goes mainly to her sister, who's still in Caracou. She's a half sister for Frances. and Francis' two children. Interestingly, though, a big chunk of that money goes back into the family and goes to the children who in the family that she's been working for as well. So there's a lot of really unusual things about this particular story, but of course we don't know how much freedom she actually really had and what options she may have had at that point to be able to even leave the family if she wanted to.
0: At one point, Malvina even had her own lodger, didn't she? Her life seems so fascinating. To achieve that level of independence in Victorian Edinburgh as a black woman is staggering. But it's not just records we have of Malvina, is it? We know that she was a watercolour painter. We know that she lived
3: in all sorts of different places in Edinburgh, mostly with the family, and extended family. She said, my grandmother was nine years old when Malley passed, 82 years old, and very, very popular with the children. As far as we know, she never married. We don't know if she had a relationship.
0: You can find this painting of Malvina Wells on the internet. The woman thought to be her is standing behind a white woman and two white children in the foreground, amid a Caribbean setting, surrounded by palm trees. Malvina is depicted in shadow, but you can still see her. She's a light-skinned black woman, drawn with Eurocentric features, big brown eyes and tight black curls peeking out from a red headwrap she's wearing. She's dressed in Victorian fashions, a blue dress with a white ruffled high neck, the painting credits her as the white family's favourite slave, Deedee. Later in Malvina's life, she began working for an MP. When she died of heart disease in 1887, she was back working as a lady's maid to her first ever employer, Joanna McRae, the little white girl depicted in the picture of Malvina. Usually, I close an episode of Human Resources with a meditation on the themes we've explored. But I'd like to invite Lisa Williams to take us out this time, with a reading from Jamaican writer Shara McCallum's book, No Ruined Stone, which imagines an alternate history of Scottish poet Robert Burns, if he'd followed through on plans to emigrate to Jamaica to work on a slave plantation. McCallum's book is voiced by a fictional version of Burns and his imagined granddaughter, a mulatta who passes for white.
3: Air Mount, Ayrshire, Atlantic, Akan, Bakra, Bannockburn, Burns, Bairns, Caledonia, Coffee, Cromanti, Culloden, Douglas, Duppy, Detta, Dream, Empire, Exile, Economics, Emancipation, Freemason, Fortune, Feared, Freed, Greenock, Gambit, Glasgow, Greed, Hadrian, Hero, Highlands, Home, Island, Inalienable, Insurrection, Independent, Jamaica, Justice, Jacobite, Joseph, Knight, Kilmarnock, Kingston, Kin, Lowlands, Leeward, Liberty, Lies, Merchant, Maroon, Macaulay, Miscegenation, Nancy, Nanny, Noble, Nation Obia Overseer Ossian Ocean Passage Passing Prophet Prophet Quadroon Quota Quashi Quandry Rebellion Race Rising Rape Slavery Springbank Scotland Silence Tacky Treaties Truth Treason Unstoried Unsung Unjust, Union, Voyage, Violence, Victors, Victims, Windward, Wallace, Wedderburn, West Indian, Jamaica, Xenolithic, Xenogenesis, X, Yonder, Yearning, Yote, Yield, Zeitgeist, Zealot, Zero Sum
0: Game. If you've enjoyed this episode, or past episodes, please rate and review our show in your favourite podcast app. It helps more people discover the show. Human Resources was written by Moya Lothian-McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Arisa Lumba and Dr Allison Bennett. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Sound design by Lex Ademora. Social assets by forward slash. This is a Broccoli production.